Hello, and welcome to episode 15. As always, thank you for tuning in as we continue to revisit some of your favorite films. We're going to be diving into some fun behind-the-scenes facts, and sometimes even bring some classic dialogue to the table, like, oh, come on, say it with me, you know you want to, I see dead people. I'm your movie-loving host, Frank, I hope that you're a movie lover too, and this is Silver Screeners. 22 years ago, it was the summer of 1999. Only about five or six more months, and then it would be the year 2000. For those of you old enough to remember, there was all of this paranoia that at the stroke of midnight on New Year's, the so-called Y2K phenomenon would manifest. Airplanes would fall from the sky, ATM machines would stop working, bank account balances would be wiped out. Basically, anything run by a computer would read the year as 1900 and cancel all functions. I can remember seeing all of these reports of canned food flying off the shelves and generators getting cranked up and bunkers being stocked up, but over in the movie world, there were plenty of entertaining distractions that were playing on the screens to keep us thrilling to the high adventures and the adrenaline-pumping thrills of the release of, oh, the first Star Wars movie in 16 years, The Phantom Menace. New Keanu Reeves' mindbender called The Matrix, and what would prove to be director Stanley Kubrick's swan song, Eyes Wide Shut, if you remember that one, that was with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. But then, summertime. Two supernatural thrillers opened one week apart from each other. The first one on July 30th, and the second on August 6th. Both made a huge killing at the box office, because of course I'm talking about ticket sales and how both movies ranked, uh, raked in the profits, but The Blair Witch Project, released July 30th, would not necessarily introduce the conceit of the found footage film, but it definitely, it certainly brought it to the forefront. Blair Witch Project is currently the seventh most profitable independent film of all time, and that's according to an October 2020 article on ScreenRant.com. It made roughly, I think it was, I see conflicting reports. Some sources said $248 million, other sources said $258 million. Either way, let's round it up to $250, let's go with the average, $250, $255, whatever. It made about that million worldwide. It became the blueprint for the way that Blumhouse Productions would operate. It would make a movie for as cheaply as possible, market the hell out of it, and then watch the money just roll in. And it's what they did in as recently as 2017 with Jordan Peele's Get Out. Oh, by the way, according to the same article, the number one most profitable independent film of all time, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. And then... After Blair Witch Project came out on July 30th, a week later, August 6th, came The Sixth Sense, which at the time had Bruce Willis as the most marketable name out of both cast and crew. This is the one, The Sixth Sense, that would launch the visibility of who was then hailed as the next great director, and that's with a capital G and a capital D. Sixth Sense would also introduce a child star who would go on to achieve one of those rare feats, getting an Academy Award nomination, probably before he ever picked up a shaving razor for the first time, and the movie itself would go on to receive a total of six Academy Award nominations. Best Supporting Actor for Haley Joel Osment, he's the kid who sees dead people. Best Supporting Actress for the 
powerhouse that remains Tony Collette, who continues to prove her might in movies like 2018's Hereditary, 2019's Knives Out. It also got nominated for Best Editing, and then M. Night Shyamalan enjoyed two nominations, one for Original Screenplay and one for Best Director, and the movie itself would be nominated for Best Picture. And unfortunately, it would not win in any of its six nominated categories. This was the year that Angelina Jolie, she claimed the Supporting Actress Prize for Girl Interrupted, Editing went to The Matrix, and the other three, Screenplay, Director, and Picture, all three of those went to American Beauty. But The Sixth Sense did not leave 1999 empty-handed. It became the second-highest grossing movie of the year, only beaten by The Phantom Menace. It made $293 million in the U.S., $379 million in other countries, which made it the highest-grossing horror film of all time, until 2017, when it was dethroned by It, Chapter 1. So, let me give you the setup of both of these movies, Blair Witch and The Sixth Sense. After that, we'll dive into some fun behind-the-scenes facts about both of them, and it just may get you to appreciate them more for what they what they actually are and what they brought to the table back at the turn of the millennium. First, the setup of the Blair Witch Project. And you have to remember, we're going back to an era when cell phones were the size of garbage trucks. When you went onto the internet, chances are you were occupying your phone line so that no one could call in while you were logged in. And there was no social media where the you know movie's secret would have been given away before it was even released. The marketing campaign for Blair Witch, that's something else that can never happen the same way again. According to the actress Heather Donahue from The Blair Witch, she said, and I quote, All those found footage movies now, they're union movies. Those are actual movies with actual budgets, so it doesn't have the same punk rock ethos that Blair Witch had. You could not have made Blair Witch with Screen Actors Guild actors. There were no meal breaks. Screen Actors Guild, that's the acting union, at least here in the United States. She said there were no meal breaks. We were shooting 24-7 without meal breaks. Nobody really directing us. It was definitely feral filmmaking, which you can't do if you have a craft services table and real safety all around you all the time. That poses a challenge to a lot of current found footage films, she says. You'll just never quite capture the wildness of what the internet was back then. End quote. So, Blair Witch Project. It certainly capitalized on the zeitgeist of the times. And it's something that really can't be replicated, at least not the same way. So, the premise of the Blair Witch Project, for those of you who may not have seen it in the past 22 years, or maybe you have not seen it at all, the real-life town of Burkittsville, Maryland. That's the place where the story, that's the place where it all begins. And if you believed everything that the marketing campaign behind the film claimed, then you were led to buy into the story that there were, back in October of 1994, Three student filmmakers, Heather, Josh, and Mike. These three, they were all in their early 20s, college age. They ventured into Burkittsville, armed with overnight camping supplies and a video camera. 
because what they were doing was, what they intended to do was make a documentary about the legend of the Blair Witch, who supposedly haunts the surrounding woods, and they were never seen again. They disappeared in the woods, and they were never seen again. Only the footage that they shot with the camera was found, and the movie, Blair Witch Project, was supposedly the found footage. In order to make this scenario even more believable, the filmmakers behind the Blair Witch Project, meaning Eduardo Sanchez and Daniel Myrick, they are the two co-writers and the two co-directors. They created a website about a year before the film's release touting these found tapes in the woods. They even made a document, a fake documentary called The Curse of the Blair Witch, which was sort of a companion piece to the movie. Sanchez created a website for the movie that, pre that provided background mythology for the film it convinced the website convinced prospective audiences that the movie was indeed found footage and so it was compiled and edited and now it's being released to the public for the first time that was the idea behind the blair witch project it was it was being marketed as a true story, a frightening story, a tragic story, and here is all we know about what happened to these three, just the found footage. Which, these days, in 2021, found footage movies, they're a dime a dozen. Let's face it, they are. They are. So it's going to have to take a real stroke of creative genius to, to get something as daring as the Blair Witch Project was back in its day. The Blair Witch Project, the movie itself, it was actually accepted to the Sundance Film Festival, where Artisan Entertainment, which no longer exists, the film company, Artisan Entertainment, they bought the distribution rights at Sundance. And what Artisan Entertainment decided to do, the big brass at Artisan, what they did was they actually hid the cast, the three actors playing these three kids, they hid the cast during the film's initial release, and they edited their IMDb pages to say that they had died. So, the hoax went so viral that Heather Donahue's mother was actually receiving condolence cards. My God, what happened to your daughter? I'm so sorry. So, the first part of the movie is compiled footage of the three students, Heather, Josh, and Mike, meeting up with each other, and beginning the process of interviewing different residents of Burkittsville, formerly known as Blair. So Blair was actually the old name of the town of Burkittsville in Maryland. We hear Heather's voice from behind the camera throughout much of this. She, at the very beginning, asks a convenience store clerk, Have you ever heard of the Blair Witch? And the clerk says, It's, well, it, it actually sounds kind of familiar. My older sister went to Blair High School. And then Heather is then caught on camera, either Mike or Josh is holding it, the camera, and she's talking about her vision for this documentary, you know, how she's picturing it in her head. And she says, the woods around Halloween time, it's a creepy enough phenomenon. I don't want to go cheesy. I don't want to go cheesy. I want to really avoid any cheese. I want to present this in as straightforward a way as possible. And I think the legend is unsettling enough. So that's Heather talking about what her vision is. She does not want to go in the direction of, of any kind of cheese or exploitation. And here's the thing. The three actors playing these three students, they all use their real first names. Heather Donahue is Heather in the movie. 
Now, I do want to talk a little bit about her. Over the years, she has been regarded as annoying and as aggressive and as unlikable. Heather Donahue won, and I use the word won in quotation marks, she won the Razzie Award for Worst Actress for this movie. You know, personal opinion, of course, but I do not think that's fair at all. Her character, her character may be all of those things. You know, her character is aggressive and at times unlikable. But all of the shade that was thrown at Heather Donahue because of the dislike for her character, I mean, that's just, that's just misplaced. That's just wrong. She actually had people walking up to her on the street once it became common knowledge that the whole thing was fake. She actually had people walking up to her on the street saying, I wish you were dead. They actually wished her dead to her face. She's an actress playing a character, so why fault her for playing unlikable? If anything, that means she did a great job playing unlikable. So I, I, I do think she pulled it off well. I'm not saying that if she ever does another movie that I'll have to go see it because, you know, Heather Donahue is in it, but I do think that she was believable. So, yeah, the movie version of Heather is a little grating, especially during the first half. Early in the film, not too long after talking with that convenience store clerk, actually. She records her introduction to her documentary. She's very presentational, and she's very dramatic, and yeah, it's in a pretty grating way. Her her manner of speech is very pretentious. It's not so much an accent as it is an affectation. I don't know if she was trying to channel sort of a mix of, I don't know, Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant, and what she was doing. Like, the word families, she pronounces it families. And the word unusual, she pronounces unusual. Like, she's doing this, like, I don't know if she's trying to be Elvira, but what she says is, and this is, what, this is what's in the film, her dialogue, This is Burkittsville, formerly Blair. It is a small, quiet Maryland town, much like a small, quiet town anywhere. No more than 20 families laid their roots here over 200 years ago, many of whom remain, either on this hill or in the town below. There are an unusually high number of children laid to rest here, most of whom passed in the 1940s. Yet no one in the town seems to recall anything unusual about this time, to us anyway. Yet legend tells a different story, one whose evidence is all around us, etched in stone. So that's her little monologue to... You know, to get the whole to get the whole ball rolling, and then cut two. You see them in well, you hear them all in the car, and she's behind the camera, and she's bursting out with "Yeehaw!" Well, we have shot the first scene, the cemetery scene. The opening is shot, and so again, irritating. But that that's who she plays. I know I'm probably sounding like her defender here, but I say cut her some slack. Razzie Award not deserved. So there are a few more people she interviews, and they all contribute to our understanding of what the Blair Witch herself was supposedly all about. How, you know, over the generations, strange things happened, like disappearing hunters in the forests, children in town going missing, and later found dead in the woods, and they, you have the trope of the town crazy, kind of like the character Ralph in the first two Friday the 13th, or, the, or that drunk guy in the diner in Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, the one who quotes the Bible and says the bird attacks are a sign that it's the end of the world. You know, you, 
they always have that, you know, that cliche of, you know, the town, the town loony, the town crazy. Here in Blair Witch Project, we are treated to Mary Brown, who offers this whopper of a tale to our three curiosity seekers. She says, and I quote, My dad and I would go fishing. I was laying down on the beach, looking up at the sky, and all of a sudden it felt like something was near me. You know, kind of an eerie feeling. It was like a woman, only on her arms and her hands and everything, it was like hair, black hair, like a like a fur, like coarse fur, a wool shawl over her. She didn't say anything, but she just kept staring, and then she opened up her shawl, and the hair in her body and her legs, and just kind of strange looking. And then, cut to the three of them back in the car, and they're driving away from her, and Heather and Josh, they're both dismissing her as a credible source. They're saying, oh, yeah, you know, she claims to be, you know, a historian and a novelist, and, you know, she's obviously not a reliable source of information. She's not what we would call a credible source. Then you have a couple of fishermen being interviewed, and one says that Blair Witch is a myth that he does not much believe in. The other one says, oh, these damn fool kids, they'll never learn. And they recount this tale from back in the late 1800s of how someone named Robin Weaver wandered off and disappeared into the woods, and then three days later she just appeared on her grandmother's porch, and everybody is all mystified about, wait a minute, what are you doing? Like, how did you just suddenly appear here? And she was babbling on something about an old woman whose feet never touched the ground. So so basically what you have in the Blair Witch Project, I'll stop there as far as setting up this movie, but basically what you have is all the groundwork being laid for, you know, what you, the viewer, what you're in for. If you have not seen the Blair Witch Project, then maybe this intro will get you wanting to revisit the late 90s. I don't know. As for my final verdict, I last saw the Blair Witch Project from beginning to end on home video probably about the year 2000. I never saw it in a theater, so by the time I actually saw it, I already knew the secret of its being fake. So the movie itself, it didn't bug me, it didn't scare me in the slightest. I appreciated it for what it was in terms of its ingenuity. I did see the sequel, Blair Witch 2, Book of Shadows. The sequel, I saw that on home video as well. Uh, summer of 2001. I was working at Blockbuster Video at the time, and uh, I thought it was lousy. The second one, I thought it was lousy, but I expected it to be. The first one, I appreciated it. I did not think it was scary. The second one, I said, well, it's just what I expected it would be, but hey, I work at Blockbuster, so I got free rentals, so what the hell. And then... In more recent years, I saw the 2016 one. This is the one where Heather Donahue's brother is supposed to be getting together a group of friends to go back into the same woods to try to find out what happened to his sister. It was it was better than Blair Witch 2. It was okay. It was not anything memorable. I did not go out and buy it. I did not recommend it to anyone. But I did rewatch the original to prepare for this, for this episode. So it was a good refresher for a lot of the details, and what struck me mostly about the movie was just how 90s it was, which it was a nostalgic romp for me, but it's also a movie that, to be fair, has not really aged all that well. The found footage thing has been done to death. You have the Paranormal Activity franchise, you have Wreck. You can still appreciate Blair Witch Project for what it was for its time, but you know now it comes across as more of a relic than a must-see in terms of being a horror fan. Uh, you know, a horror fan, must-see Blair Witch. It's a, it's a should-see, 
I would call it a should-see-it in terms of film history, especially the history of independent filmmaking. Definitely a great lesson in clever marketing if you approach these things from more of a business perspective, but, but that's just it, you know? Generational influences and the evolving times, they have not done Blair Witch Project any favors. It's more of a... It's, it's a product of its time. And as such, it's not one that I think future generations are going to look at and get all freaked out by. I think that ship really has sailed. Either way, let me now set up the Sixth Sense, which the Academy clearly favored over the footage found in Burkittsville, because, again, six Oscar nominations. So the Sixth Sense, the setting is Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And as this story begins... We meet Dr. Malcolm Crow, Bruce Willis, and his wife, and they're alone at home, and she's all proud of him because he's been given some kind of an award or a citation for excellence. He's a child psychologist, and he works with emotionally troubled kids, and so he's been given this award, and she's reading the inscription on the award. You know, she expresses her concern that maybe she comes second to his career. They toss back a few drinks, and... Then they get a little silly with each other, and they make their way upstairs, and once they enter their bedroom, their um, uh, frivolity, <laughs> I'll say, is interrupted by a disturbing sight. A former patient of his, played by Donnie Wahlberg of New Kids on the Block fame. He's now a young man. He was his patient when he was a kid. He was Dr. Malcolm Crowe's patient when he was a kid. Now he's a young man. He's standing in the bathroom doorway in his underwear, and he is crying and seething. He's obviously deeply distraught. He's disturbed. He's filled with anger and despair. He, he feels betrayed that Malcolm was not able to help him. So he pulls out a gun, he shoots Malcolm, and then he shoots himself. Uh, Malcolm's wife, she goes running over to him, she's screaming, we have a great bird's eye view angle of the scene as it fades out, then a year later, one year passes, we see Malcolm, he's looking recovered, and he is about to begin working with a new patient, a nine-year-old boy named Cole, Cole Sear, and he is determined not to fail with Cole, as he apparently did with Mark Wahlberg's character, whose name was Vincent. And he soon realizes that his wife is much more distant from him as he is spending more and more time devoting himself to Cole. Cole has this deep secret that is plaguing him, one that he is not able to tell his single mother about. But eventually, he does reveal to Malcolm and... It's no spoiler here at this point, at this stage of the game. His big secret is, is that he has the sixth sense. He sees dead people walking around like regular people. So, yeah, that's enough. <laughs> that is enough of the setup of the sixth sense. And what I would like to do is now sort of hit the pause button and announce which of these two movies you all voted for as the one that you prefer. I put this poll out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and I can tell you right now that the clear winner is The Sixth Sense. Eight votes for The Sixth Sense, one vote for The Blair Witch Project. So, I do want to give a few shout-outs here among the comments. 
among the comments. Jason Ebbs. Jason Ebbs. How you doing, Jason? Uh, Jason Ebbs. He is a musician and a damn good one, too, at that. Check out his albums, The Deep End and Super Ego. You can find his music on Spotify, Apple Music. He has a YouTube channel, SoundCloud, Bandcamp. He's got a great sound, so go check out Jason Ebbs' work, E-B-B-S. Uh, he voted for the Blair Witch Project. We also have Kim said that Blair Witch Project was just very strange, she said. Too many unanswered questions at the end, too. Not a fan of open-ended endings. Sixth Sense was probably one of the best endings I've ever seen. Plot twists that I can get behind. Leaving me with questions? Not so much. I need the closure. Then, I also want to give a shout-out to Liz. Liz, who appreciated the creativity behind Blair Witch, but going into it, never believed it was real, so that's why she thought it was boring. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> uh, we also have my friend and fellow movie lover Mike, Mike W., who thought that The Sixth Sense has one of the best endings ever. And we also have Stew World Order, S-T-E-W, Stew World Order, S-W-O Productions, that is the podcast name. They review comic book movies twice a month, and they also offer entertainment articles and reviews on Twitter daily. And they say, quote, probably The Sixth Sense, but I was never a huge fan of either. I think they're both fine. So I say to SD, I'm sorry, SWO Productions, hey, fair enough. And here is where I say to all listeners, proceed at your own discretion, because from this point on, you will get the behind-the-scenes facts, so, to be fair, spoiler alert. And as always, if you hit pause and then go watch these movies, don't forget to come back afterwards to finish listening to this. So, first, for the Blair Witch, the top five fun facts about the Blair Witch Project. Number five, there was an ad that was put out when they were casting the film, and the ad basically said, improvisational feature film, open call, open auditions for what was at that point called the Black Hill Project, non-union, with pay, travel, and meals, shooting October through November for two to three weeks in Maryland, seeking women and men 18 to 25 with a natural look. Extremely challenging roles to be shot under very difficult conditions. So, what they did in terms of how they set up these auditions, they set up improvisation scenarios. So Heather Donahue recalls this. She says, yeah, they set up these scenarios for us. So when I went into audition, they said to me, you have served half of your sentence for killing your baby. Why should we let you out? And Donahue, who at the time was a founding member of an improv troupe and an experimental theater company in New York, she said, and I looked at them and replied, I don't think you should. I don't think you should let me out. And she says, I think I was the only woman who actually said that, and so I got the role. She went on to say, the initial reaction of my loved ones once I got the role was that I definitely should not go into the woods with a bunch of guys I didn't know. My mom wanted to know if she could have all of their social security numbers. All of my friends pitched in to make sure that I bought a knife. I actually thought it was going to be much harsher than it turned out to be. I thought I was going to have to skin a squirrel. So, interesting behind-the-scenes look there. All right. Next. Originally, it was Mike. 
Mike was the first one to begin cracking up when they got lost. He burst into these hysterical, uncontrollable fits of laughter. He admits to throwing the map into the stream. He was the one who was going to disappear first, not Josh. But because Josh and Heather were fighting a lot, the writers and directors, Sanchez and Myrick, they decided to... And so Josh recalls, quote... That day, he said, because they, they would all get at the end of each, at the beginning of each shooting day, they would get a note that would say, you know, this is what you're going to be doing today, improv as you go along. So he said that day, my note said, when everybody goes to bed tonight, stay awake. And once you're sure they're asleep, leave the tent. If anybody wakes up, tell them you're going to take a piss. And so Josh disappears only to be briefly heard, or so Heather and Mike think they hear him, at the movie's chilling conclusion. So, Heather and Mike didn't know that Josh was going to be leaving. They did not know that he was going to be leaving. So when they woke up the next morning, you know, the surprise of, you know, where is he, that was real. So, he said, Josh said that, you know, some people from the crew, they were there waiting for me with flashlights. And they said, you're dead, dude. And they took me out to a really nice meal at Denny's. So Heather and Mike, by the way, they also got to go to Denny's as well after meeting their own after meeting their own on-screen deaths. Next, as Myrick, uh, one of the writers and directors, Myrick, as he told Broadly magazine, he said, "All the weird kind of noises and stuff is just us running around in the woods. When they wake up and there are rock piles outside their tents, we planted those, obviously." The stick figures, we hung them. We just led them around in a 24-hour-a-day stage play, really. We're the ones who shook their tent. We played the sounds of little kids playing outside their tent. We made noises in the middle of the night. We led them to this crazy house at the end. We, we basically just played the, the Blair Witch. And Myrick also says, The final scene with the house, it looks like it's all one take. Heather's shrieking in the house, and it looks like she's losing her mind. We actually shot that over multiple takes and over two days. That was one of the most traditional segments of the movie. We had to really set and reset and be careful walking through that house so that nobody got hurt. It was much more orchestrated. Nobody was scared. At that point, they were tired. The real fear that registers on their face is just pure performance. The next fun fact, again, from Heather Donahue. She said... We had a code word with the crew, bulldozer, for when we wanted to drop out, like a safe word. Our safe word between each other, the three of us, our safe word between each other was taco. We had been hiking in the rain all day one day, and they had put our tents up, and when we got to our tents following the GPS system, the tent had like an inch of water in it, and we were like, we're done, we're actors, we do not have to do it this way, we've had enough. And so we got on the radio, and we were like, bulldozer, bulldozer, bulldozer. But they were having dinner, the crew. They were out having dinner at Chi-Chi's, so they did not hear us. We left the woods, found the first house that we went to, knocked on the door. The guys were like, you have to go, you have to go, because if a guy knocks on the door at a house in the woods at night, nobody is going to let them in. So I knocked on the door, and I'm like, I'm sorry, we're supposed to be lost in the woods, but we're not, and we have to call these guys. So Heather was the one that Josh and Mike made knock on the door. They said, because, you know, guys knocking on the door, that's not going to work. And she says the people who answered the door, they were weirdly nice enough and trusting enough to let us in. And they gave us hot cocoa. We ended up staying in a hotel that night. So, 
What you see on screen is not always what is real. The final fact about the the final fun fact about the Blair Witch Project. Heather Donahue's final monologue. This is the stuff of Blair Witch. This is the stuff that the legacy is made of. That famous image of her, tears in her eyes, snot running from her nose, saying into the camera, apologizing into the camera for everything that her project has resulted in. This is what you see in, you know, so many promotional materials for the film. And Sanchez, one of the writers, directors, Sanchez says, we didn't know that final monologue was going to be such a crazy, iconic moment in our movie. We told Heather, quote, you don't want to freak out Mike, obviously. So this is after Josh disappeared. So it's just her and Mike. And so we told Heather, you don't want to freak out Mike, obviously. So take the camera, find an area near the tent and basically say goodbye to everybody you know, because you're going to die. End quote. We were feeding them ideas where they went as far as their character. At that point, Heather pretty much knew she was going to die, and then she went out and delivered this crazy, brilliant performance, as he put it. It was one of those moments, as filmmakers, we hadn't seen her shoot that because we basically left her alone. But when we saw that, when we saw that, we were like, wow, this could be really powerful. Interestingly enough, Heather Donahue has not logged in any acting credits since 2008. She did write a memoir that came out in 2012 called Grow Girl about her life after Blair Witch, her post-acting adventures in the uh, marijuana growing business, of all things. And she wrote in her book that the Blair Witch marketing may have done too good of a job convincing people that she and her co-stars were just random kids, making it making it difficult for them to be taken seriously as actors afterwards when they were trying to get work. And there you have the fun facts for the Blair Witch Project. Moving along to the fun facts behind The Sixth Sense, the top five. Number five, The Sixth Sense. When M. Night Shyamalan's script began making the rounds throughout the studios in Hollywood, it did come with a few stipulations. One thing, he insisted, I have to be attached as director. The president at the time of production at the Walt Disney Studios, David Vogel, go ahead and Google this, he read the script, loved it, and he bought the rights to The Sixth Sense for $2.25 million without getting corporate approval. He did not get the boss's okay. So you can only imagine this did not go over too well with the head honchos at Disney, they were angry and they said to him, you go back and you restructure the contract also give up some of your presidential power. You had no right to do this. He refused. And because he refused, he was fired in July of 1999, you know, mere weeks before the film was released. Disney had such little faith in the film that they actually sold the production rights to Spyglass Entertainment. Disney retained the distribution rights, and get this, only 12.5% of the movie's box office receipts. And once I read that, all I could think about was Julia Roberts and Pretty Woman when she goes back into that boutique the following day after she was kicked out the day before. And she says, you work on commission, right? Big mistake. Big. Huge. If you remember that scene from Pretty Woman, that's, that's, that line of dialogue just went through my mind <laughs> as soon as I saw that, that Disney only hung on to 12.5% of the movie's box office receipts. Somebody was kicking themselves that night. Okay, next, uh, next one. A few years earlier... Bruce Willis, he was attached to both star in and produce another Disney film called Broadway Baller. Uh, 
and only 20 days into production on that film, he fired the director and a lot of the crew, so the movie ultimately was cancelled. Disney slapped him with a lawsuit, and a bill, for the $17.5 million already spent on the scenes that they had filmed. So, what Bruce Willis ended up doing was signing a three-picture contract with the studio, where a portion of his salary would go back to the studio to cover the losses. So, it was a three-picture contract, and the first picture in that three-picture contract was Armageddon. The second was The Sixth Sense, and the third, if you recall, a movie called The Kid. That pulled off the, uh, the hat trick. Next... New Kids on the Block member Donnie Wahlberg. Remember I told you he plays Vincent Gray at the beginning. He lost 43 pounds in preparation for his role because he was so determined to prove that he was serious about pursuing an acting career. The attention that he got led to his role in the Emmy-winning HBO miniseries Band of Brothers, if you remember that one. Next, number two. While Toni Collette earned herself a Best Supporting Actress nomination for playing Lynn Seat, Cole's mom, the role was almost played by someone else altogether. Did you know that Marissa Tomei was actually in the running? It was down to Colette and Tomei. And number one, aside from delivering a rather exceptional audition, Haley Joel Osment also wore a tie to his initial test, which very much impressed M. Night Shyamalan. Osmond actually stayed up the night before his audition, and he read the entire script three times. And when he told this to Shyamalan, Shyamalan said to him, Oh, you read your part three times? And Osmond said to him, Oh, no, I read the script three times. And then right then and there, that's when Shyamalan said to himself, If this kid does not do this movie, I don't even know if I want to do this movie. So... Those are my two cents on both films. You can spend those two cents, save them and chuck them as you see fit. One thing that I would like to do before we close out is to head back over to the socials because there is one last thing. Trivia time. Last episode, we talked about Die Hard and High Noon, and the question that I gave you then was about Gary Cooper, who won the Academy Award for High Noon, which was actually his second Oscar win. His first was a few years earlier for Pride of the Yankees. And the question that I gave you was, what real-life Yankees ball player did Cooper portray? And congratulations are in order to Mary C., who answered correctly with Lou Gehrig. Personalized meme coming your way, Mary, and thank you for sending in your response. And, of course, there is a new trivia question now, and, as usual, I will be putting it out there on the socials along with the show link. So, for a personalized meme and a shout-out, take a crack at this one. I mentioned that Haley Joel Osment got an Oscar nomination for Supporting Actor for The Sixth Sense. He did not win, but who did? Who is the one to receive the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor 1999? Who claimed the trophy and used his acceptance speech to basically to praise the talents of his other four nominees, including Osment, which is a pretty classy move, even if the win of the Oscar, in my own personal humble opinion, was not exactly justified. But you do get one other hint. For this winner... For this winner, it was a second trip to the podium. He had won supporting actor before in the mid-1980s for the Woody Allen film Hannah and Her Sisters. 
So, name that actor. Send your answers on over. You can send them through Facebook. The Silver Screeners public Facebook groups. Uh, it's called Silver Screeners. <laughs> and you can also send it through Instagram, Frank Mendoza1974. Twitter, FilmBuff1974. If you prefer to use email, then you can simply shoot me an email, frankmendoza at yahoo.com. If you have any follow-up questions or any comments, thoughts of your own that you want to share on The Blair Witch Project, Sixth Sense, any movie that I may have or not yet talked about, just hit me up. And I say this and I mean it. I love hearing from people, whether you're a fellow podcaster, whether you're a musician, whether you're a writer, whether you're a listener, whether you're all of the above, whoever. And that does wrap up episode 15. So as always, I want to thank you for tuning in. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. No complaints. If you do take a second to give this show a rating on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Podchaser, wherever you may listen to your podcasts, it does help to boost the algorithms and to get people to discover the show. And if you want to leave a quick review of Silver Screeners, that would be great as well. And a big, hearty, sincere, full thank you to those of you who already have. Pleasant rock on. And as always, I'm Frank. And thank you again for joining me. And until next time, keep on screening. I'll see ya.